0: Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 27. We've got two weeks left in our series in Acts, and you know, I, um, when we uh, as pastors sit down and look at how um, the, uh, how we want to work through a book of the Bible, how we want to go through a series as a church, and we kind of set the pace for that, um, We we really don't do it while like opening up a calendar and going, I mean, we do use a calendar, but we don't open up a calendar and go, OK, when's your birthday? And what day is coming up here? And when's this thing? We want to make sure we talk about this here, and this here, and this here. Uh, we just sort of uh, instead look at it and say, what's the best way to sort of pace ourselves to go through this thing so that we can learn as much as we can from it um, and uh, and talk about each thing the way it needs to be taught or talked about? And so um, we've done that with Acts. and. Uh, and uh, that's why, you know, sometimes it seems like we're working with a really big piece of scripture, because we feel like to break it down into multiple times of looking at it, you might get too sort of caught up in the weeds. Um, and then other times we uh, deal with really specific, just a few verses. Um and of course, uh, it's no surprise then that God, being God, um, gives us the ability, if we're faithful to Scripture, to make that Scripture uh, relevant to our lives and to uh, bring it to us as we need to hear it. And so we often find ourselves going like, man, what a, what a great time to talk about this, what a great time to talk about this. Um, and so, uh, so this week, uh, we're talking about a shipwreck, and we're talking about a storm, and we're talking about what it is like when Paul, towards the end of his uh, journeys and his time as a missionary, uh, finds himself in this famous epic account of, like, turmoil in the Mediterranean Sea. And, um, and we're going to look at this whole chapter, and I'll just say this. It's taken a lot of self-control for me okay because this is exactly the kind of thing that pastors like to just totally geek out over i mean like maps like you wouldn't believe you know and like dates and arrows and i've never been so tempted to just get a laser pointer out for some reason and i was like why why do i keep feeling like i want to like laser point to things and but because i have little kids i i just think of stuff like that as you'll all go chase it and everything because my kids are apparently like cats but um The point is, um, uh, I'm going to do my best to not do that stuff. Um, I think that one of the things, though, that I think is important is that we really do understand what happens here, where Paul goes. And my hope is that we can kind of look at it at a pace that might seem kind of quick, but also look at it in a way that doesn't get us so obsessed with the details of every little place he's going to and everything that happens that we miss the bigger ideas of what's going on here. Um, I read through this uh, chapter again and again and again, so many times, and still didn't understand all of what I was reading. Mostly because I was like, "Wait, is that a person? Is that a place? Is that a what, what's happening?" I have, I have no idea. Like I had to go look things up, and some things aren't there anymore, and other things are. And um, but um, this is written uh, from the perspective of Luke, who writes Acts, and it begins with uh, this "we" language, but because because Luke. Is now with Paul. He's joined with Paul as um, as uh, Paul is going to Rome. Uh, Pastor Matt left us last week with Paul in Jerusalem. He's in trouble. He's defending himself, and he says to the leaders there, he says, "I appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen." And by the end of it, they go, "Man, this guy's like probably would get off the hook if he hadn't appealed to Caesar." But now, all right, if that's what he wants, then he's going to Rome, and so they send him to Rome. And that's where we pick up uh, this week as we look at Paul's journey to Rome and what an incredible journey that it is. So we're going to read through this and we're going to stop at different points. There is a map and I'm very excited about it, uh, but we'll get to there. So chapter 27, we'll read the first five verses here. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, uh, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea... Along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. All right, so stop right there. Here it is. Get ready for some maps. Um, So Paul has to go to Rome. And the way they have to do that is through the water. Not by swimming, but by doing that on a ship. And so uh, he brings Luke with him. It's probably pretty easy for Luke to go along on this journey because Luke is a doctor. And all a doctor has to say is, you want a doctor along? And they go, why not? So Luke comes, and they also bring someone else. And we don't really know all of why this other guy is with him, but we know that he's a friend of Paul's. So he's in ministry with him. And it's, it's possible that he actually even simply said to them, um, uh, this is my servant, and, uh, and I want him to come along with me and help take care of me. And we'll pay his way or he'll pay his way. Uh, that would explain why Paul eventually sort of uh, gains, or, or really right off the bat even, gains the respect of the centurion. Um, if, if he was poor, he had no servants, anything like that, it's likely the centurion would just be like, whatever, man, I don't care about what you want. But, um, but the fact that he probably sees Paul with a certain level of respect um, would explain why he immediately starts to like be favorable and kind towards him, so they have to get of the Mediterranean Sea so they hike it across land, probably get onto a boat in Caesarea and it says this boat is out of Adramitium or whatever that place is up there all that means is this boat probably just goes back and forth to uh, to where they got on at Caesarea there and their job their goal is to get to uh, Myra because that's kind of like the Atlanta you know that's like you get on the well, the short flight you hop over there and then that's like the hub where everybody goes and they get on the big long flight and they say, okay, now we're going to go the rest of the way to Italy. So they just have to get there. So they get on this boat. They sail for all of one day and then they get off. And it says that the centurion uh, lets him go be with his friends in Sidon, which is nice of him. And, uh, and then they get back on the boat, and it says that they basically fight the wind along the shore and they kind of creep their way up. Now, the reason they do this, and this is a big part of, of all of what we're going to be seeing this morning, is that the Mediterranean is not a very easy place to sail. They, here we go, your mind's going to be blown here. They don't have motors. Uh, This is not a motorboat or a ship with an engine and it also isn't one of those, you know Paul shirtless with all of his buddies like rowing millions of oars kind of a thing. They're dependent on the wind and the wind in the Mediterranean Sea doesn't really want them to go where they want to go it seems. And so what they have to do is they have to fight the wind all the way up along the coast. And so that's why they stay so close to the coast. They also don't have the ability to Like take these long journeys across open water, um, um, and you know, fill, get all these supplies that'll hold for a really long time. So they just kind of like go from um, pretty close to the land where they can be safe, and uh, and they slowly have to fight the wind all the way across. And then he says they cross open sea, which, as you can see, like it's not really that much of open sea, but uh, that's to them and the boat that they're in a pretty big deal, and it's kind of scary because. They can't see land probably at that point, and they sail across, and they get to this place, Myra, and now they're going to kind of get on the main boat, the main ship. So we read on, and uh, starting in verse 6, there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Cnidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, farther, we sailed under the Lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhavens, near which was the city of Lycia. So, uh, like I said, uh, they are fighting the wind on every boat that they're on because of which way it wants to blow. Now, uh, they get onto a ship out of Alexandria, and it's a wheat ship. And in the Roman Empire, one of the things that they needed was food, a constant supply of it, and Egypt was one of their primary sources. And so these big ships, these big ships with hundreds of people that they could fit, would uh, go um, up to where they wanted to be, and, uh, and it would get them all the way to Rome the rest of the way. So they get on this huge ship. Now, the way that traveling... Oversee works at this time is they don't just have passenger ships. So you go with this Roman centurion, you you find a boat that's going where you want to go, and that boat is almost always going to be full of like cargo and stuff that they're just trying to ship or get somewhere. And uh, you you kind of haggle with the person that owns the ship, the person captaining the ship, and you say, "All right, let me get on your ship." And it's not the best accommodations. You have to bring all your own food. A lot of times they like camp and like pitch tents on the deck of the boat and just like sleep there and then they have to clean everything up and get it all out of the way and just like be out of the way the whole day while these people do their business with their boat and try to get their stuff where it's going to go but if you do this with a roman centurion that person represents the emperor they represent rome and so roman centurion's in charge of the boat now so they get on this big boat roman centurion basically has the biggest say and his prisoner is paul who he seems to have a little bit of respect for it seems so they get on this ship, and they very slowly, as Luke describes it, and there's a lot of detail here because Luke's a detail guy, but Luke also clearly doesn't know a lot about sailing because of the way that he describes these things. He's like, man, we just crept along, and it took us forever, and we finally got to this little spot off the island of Crete called Havens. Doesn't that sound nice, Havens? It's right next to some big city, Lycia. So they get to Havens." And it's taken them so long to get there uh, that they're already starting to worry about the time of year that it is, because this is a pretty bad time to travel. It's right around now, actually, is when they're, they're doing this. And, uh, and they're facing the winter pretty close at hand. That's why the wind is so bad and so terrible. And they want to make sure that they basically, at this point, get somewhere where they can spend the winter, like three months the winter. And then uh, there, you just learned how long winter is. No motors, and winter's three months. So you write that down in your notes of things that have blown your mind. They want to stay somewhere for these cold months because it's just way too dangerous to try to go where they're going at that time. The currents are too unpredictable. The wind can take you and just in the opposite direction you want to go, and it would be a disaster. And so that's where we read that the trouble starts in verse 9. Since much time had passed... And the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. What a shock, right? And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there... On the chance that somehow they could reach phoenix a harbor of crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there okay so if you ever wondered if you could relate to something in the bible okay and you have found yourself wanting to spend the winter in phoenix there you go paul knows how you feel paul says to these guys so uh at this point we should really stay where we are because most people knew that once you got past the island of Crete. Uh, I get another map coming up here. I'm very excited. Once you get past Crete, um, you get in these really crazy conditions and you can easily go literally the wrong way through the Mediterranean Sea. And so Paul's like, guys, it's called Fairhaven for crying out loud. Let's just stay here for the winter, okay? And they say, nah, we don't really like the you know the conditions of this place. You know, movie theaters aren't good, restaurants, whatever it is. We don't want to spend three months here. We're going to go on just a little bit further, and we all agree. And Luke, as he's writing this, he seems even kind of surprised that they didn't listen to Paul. Like, don't you guys know this is Paul, right? You should listen to what he says. And so, surprise, surprise, uh, the centurion listens to the captain and the guy that owns the ship uh, because uh, they want to get somewhere better to spend the winter. Now, where they want to go is that far. It's that little red dot right there. Phoenix, it's so close. They're like, Paul, come on, just this much further. And he's like, guys, like we know this is risky. We know we shouldn't necessarily do this. They overrule him, and they decide to take their chances. And because they encounter some favorable conditions, they keep going. Starting in verse 13, this is where the trouble really happens. It says, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor... And sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. And then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the grate and thus they were driven along. Is that is that the end of this part? Okay, I think so. So, oh no, go on. And uh, since they were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when they neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So what happens is they have a southern wind, which means that, comes from the south and it's blowing them in the direction they want to go they're like good worst case scenario it'll push us against the island which is actually what we want so it starts to go well and then the wind changes big surprise and this wind comes up that sailors in the area are terrified of it's called the grigal it's like a thing that still exists it's it's a current and it's a and or i'm sorry it's a it's a type of wind like a like a well-known form and it's one that these sailors dreaded because it would push you from the northeast down into the middle of the mediterranean which is not what you want and so it's like pushing them along and they're like look a really tiny little island they stop on the little island they go all right bring in the lifeboat for whatever that's for they bring it in they they this is how sketchy things are at the time, okay? They wrap rope around the ship to hold it together. That's a good sign, right? Uh, my understanding, my limited understanding of rope and wood is that you tie rope to wood and the wood's stronger than the rope or something. Apparently not. Uh, because they had one sail on one mast and the wind would be so strong that it would actually push the mast and pull the ship apart. So they wrap ropes around it, they drag this thing behind them to kind of like keep them able to go through the storm the best way possible, and then they just headed into the storm. And as they headed into the storm, I think that's what it looks like right there. That's basically what it was like for them. It says that they began to throw off cargo. They threw off a bunch of the wheat that they had. They throw off tackle. You can tell Luke's a part of this because he says with our bare hands, with their bare hands. So he's obviously like, oh, we had to use our hands. My hands hurt now when I'm writing or something. I'm, these hands are for writing and being a doctor or whatever. No offense to writers and doctors, but Luke wasn't, you know, a sailor. So he says we throw everything off. We end up in a spot where we can't see the stars, which means we don't know where we're going. Can't even tell what time of day it is. We can't see land, which for them on a ship like this is terrifying. And we have absolutely no idea what we're going to do. Now, if there's any part of you that thinks that Paul is not the kind of guy that says, I told you so, you're about to see that that's not true. Starting in verse 21, it says, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. And not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now, I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life amongst you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted all those who sail with you. So take heart, men for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told but we must run aground on some island is what he says so Paul comes up and he says I told you so guys I told you so and then he says to them, God has spoken to me. Now, this is different from what Paul says before, because what he says before is just Paul being a wise person. He's, he's saying, guys, if we go on, there's there, a lot of times it's easy to think. A guy like Paul, he's probably at this point where whenever he says something, is he just saying like, oh yeah, God wanted me to say that. That's what God thinks. Everything I say is what God says. That's not how it works. So Unless Paul says, God told me this thing, it's just Paul talking. And at this point, he says, okay, guys, an angel came to me and told me these things. Essentially, I'm going to be okay because I'm going to Rome. God told me what he is going to do. And if you are with me, then you'll be okay too. Paul's saying something that is not a new concept, especially in the Bible, which is that God is in control of what's going on. And that's what he's telling these guys. As he's saying to them, God is in control here. And he has told me that I'm going to be okay. This is what it looks like when God is in control. Now, to be more realistic, you could probably put a question mark on the end of that statement. Maybe say, this is what it looks like when God is in control. Because most of the time, that's how it feels. You see, we, we tell each other, God is in control when things are hard, right? And it seems like we're always pointing to these times when, oh, look at the thing God did, and look at how everything turned out okay, and look at that story in the Bible where things were good because God was in control. But we're telling, uh, people are telling us that at a time when none of those things are happening, and we have to be reminded God's in control because nothing is going the way we want it to go, nothing is going well, and things seem like a mess. People say, it's okay, God's in control. And we go, well, um, if God's in control, then... What that means in my mind is that if I follow God, if I submit to Him, if I'm His in the way that Paul is, then that means that God is going to use these things that are happening in my life to uh, guide and direct me into what to do. Anytime that storms are talked about in the Bible, it's an example of the power that God has over nature. And this story is no exception. God can use a storm. God can use uh, animals. God can calm and bring them up at his will. God can control these things. He's stronger and more powerful and bigger than these things. And so, don't be worried because God's in control. But, But we go, but I thought that if God's in control, then that means he's using those things to kind of make stuff happen the way he wants. If that's true, then that means that when the storm comes up, it means we're supposed to stop, right? When, the, when these things get bad, it means that I'm supposed to turn around or do something different because isn't that what it looks like when God's in control? We have this idea as Christians, and it's not, a, not an accurate one, to be honest. It's more of a kind of a greeting card idea that we've kind of come up with over time. It's not something that you read about much in the Bible. And the idea is that God is simply in the business of opening and closing doors for all of us, right? You're going along in life, you're doing things, and then things get really difficult and things start to fall apart. That's maybe God's way of saying just stop, just turn around and take a break for a while right we when things get hard we go well god wouldn't want this in my life right god wouldn't want me to have to endure this thing god wouldn't want things to be like this if god's in control then he obviously his will wouldn't be for some of these things to be able to happen and yet paul is saying to these men an angel has come to me and told me god is in control and the first thought i have the first thought we have when we look at this is this is what it looks like when god's in control and the answer is yes the truth is that rather than see God using circumstances to tell us the easiest path in life and to say, when you follow me, you're going to be the one with the easy path. People are going to look at you, they're going to say, look, God must be in control of their life because of how much everything is falling into place for them. The problem is, as we come to see here, we're all in the same ship. We are in the same ship with All the other people who don't believe that God is in control. Just as Paul is in the same ship with these men. And so he says to them, he says, Your salvation, your very salvation, is tied to the fact that you guys are with me right now. Because God says, I'm going to get you to Rome, I'm going to take you to where you need to go. this is a map of the currents of the Mediterranean Sea and when you look at this this is actually the way that we think God works we think that God just kind of like moves us around through things by setting up obstacles and then removing other ones, and we go, well, obviously this, obviously that. But but the problem is that's a very uh, that's a very like small and limited understanding or perspective of how God would actually work. In fact, we read about in James that the foolish man is the one who is blown and tossed like a wave of the sea, meaning uh, that that we in who we submit to and who we follow and our ability to persevere and continue going on the direction that we were, we are like a person who is, who is foolish, who is without God. If we allow um, these, these conditions, these, these waves to direct us, we are to be the people who say, if God's in control, then I persevere and I continue going. It makes sense that people who don't believe that God is in control would be more inclined to say, let's look at the circumstances around us and let's come to some conclusions based on those things. Let's define what is real and what is, what is uh, serious and what is a problem and what priorities are based on the conditions of life that are going on around us. And Christians are to be the people who do not base... Our decisions, our feelings, our goals, our objectives, our passions, our very hope on simply the things that are going on around us, as if to say, oh, God wouldn't want this for me because I'm one of his children. God wouldn't allow this to happen in his kingdom. If you believe, and unfortunately, there's a lot of bad theology out there that supports this belief. If you believe that to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, to be someone who submits to God like Paul, if you believe that your life will then get easier and better, and that people will be forced to look at you and say, look, clearly at how God is steering the conditions of their life, you've literally never read anything in the Bible about anybody who followed God. Because when God calls people to follow Him, oftentimes their life gets harder, like in ways that almost don't even make sense. Like David, you're going to be the king. You're a good guy. You're going to be the king. Okay, well then, why is Saul the king? Clearly insane. I'm hiding from him now. He wants to kill me. He is not super great at what he's doing in his job right now. Uh, would it be possible for me to take over? And God's like, no, not yet. No, nope, not yet. You're just going to have to wait some more time. Like. If ever the circumstances and the conditions of what was going on were supposed to tell somebody that, uh, that, that they could do what made the most sense for them, what, what self-preservation spelled out, it was a guy like David. The Bible's filled with examples of people who follow God, and yet they anticipate the trial and the difficulty that comes because that stuff doesn't mean that God isn't in control. Psalm 23 says, Uh, Which David wrote, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. You comfort me. My rod and my staff. He doesn't say if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He says, though I walk through, as I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, because we recognize that this is what happens in life. And as we are in this valley, it does not say, you pull me out of the valley. It doesn't say, you get me away from the valley. It doesn't say, you give me the ability to levitate from the valley and everyone's minds are blown. It says, you comfort me, you protect me. Why? Because God is in control. That's what it means. Paul is saying to these men, this is what it looks like for God to be in control of what's going on. And if you trust me... And if you stick with me, then you'll be okay. And so we read on in verse 27. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. This is how they slow down. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, not a good sign, uh, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Uh, To be clear, it's not a good sign when the professional sailors on the boat try to sneak away in the lifeboat, which is what they were doing. And what the centurion did is he put all of his trust at this point in Paul. He literally cut away the lifeboat and sent it out and said, okay, I'm going to make sure nobody can get off this ship alive because we need to stick with him because his God is in control. And I'm going to trust that, and I'm going to believe that. We continue on in verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So, um, they've been adrift at sea for 14 days. And uh, one of the things about being on a boat like this in a storm is, uh, one of the things you don't think a whole lot about is eating. Uh, one of the first things to go, it turns out, is appetite. And, um, and while there is still some food left on the ship, the cargo that they've had, um, uh, Paul takes on the position of the leader of this entire ship of almost seventy people. And what he says to them is very simple it's very basic he says you need to eat and he sets the example he he eats some bread and almost like ceremonially right this kind of makes you think of communion He says he broke the bread they ate it they're not taking communion on the ship but what he's doing is he is reminding them guys we have a future if we're going to get through this then we cannot give ourselves into despair You see, what people do in situations like this, I mean, in situations that get so difficult, is they give themselves over to despair. And one of the last things that they have is hope. And the thing that ultimately wins out over that, the thing that people see and that they respond to, is hope. And so Paul gives them that. He does it in the smallest, most tangible. I mean, he's already told them God's in control. All these big theological things. Okay, great. Yeah, fine. Whatever. We're gonna sneak off and we're gonna sail ourselves away, right? He shows these guys. Guys, I believe I'm gonna live on. I believe that we're gonna get through this and be okay. And how does he do it? Is he eats some food? And he says, "You need to eat some food." When people are given over to despair. Uh, they they tend to just stop worrying about and thinking about the most basic things, and what they need people to do and reminding them is to that they need to have hope. Now now there are many uh, churches, there are many Christians who struggle to have hope when things are hard. When when the when uh, now here's the deal. I, okay, so I, I I spent obviously a lot of time you know maps and dates and Learning all kinds of nautical things I did sailing lessons for a while to try to prepare for this Um, I have a boat so I've been in that a lot and my kids have been rocking it back and forth and stuff like that Um, I spent the night outside last night So I would know what it was like to be cold like this and uh, and I ate some two-week-old bread I did all my spent all my time doing that stuff so that I could really wrap my mind around these things and try to simplify them for you I didn't get to spend any time in sort of connecting the dots with your lives So you're gonna have to make the humongous leap here if you can of trying Trying to think of what it would be like to be in a turmoil, trying to think of what it would be like to maybe live through a difficult time and to be stuck in a ship with people that you maybe don't even want to be stuck in a ship with. Whatever that means to you, I'm not saying anything specific. Now, when that happens and when things are hard, churches and Christians respond one of two ways. The most common way to respond is to go, good news, everybody. We've got heaven to look forward to, and so we're out of here. I'm just going to check out, I'm just going to say, good, good. It, let's, let's bring it on, right? The end is near. We need to focus on that, and sorry all of you who don't get it, but you don't get it, and I'm kind of praying that it comes to you soon, and you'll see. One of the last things that you have is, is, is a sense of, of hope, hope that you can convey to other people. And, but then there are those who uh, who are more optimistic, right, who say, no, 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 I don't want to, I want to care, I want to I be relevant still to what's going on. But that word's kind of a weird word when it comes to especially church, because you think, oh yeah, there's no shortage of Christians and churches out there that are trying so hard to just, just Connect with the people on the boat to just be like, yes, like we wanna we wanna be on the same page. No, I get it, I know how this is, right? And and yet the idea of just trying to come up with what makes us the most relevant to the people in the world around us, what connects us to this world still and keeps us invested in it in a way, uh, those don't seem like very good things that come to mind. And the fact is there is no shortage of Christians and churches and and even leaders who are desperately trying to be relevant, and yet Paul is showing us something here that is so important and it is so easy to miss, and it is this, what makes him relevant is his hope. Because the thing that is needed is hope. And how many of us in times like this of despair and discouragement go, do you know why God put me here on this earth still today? is to be a hopeful person, to be a person who shows those in the world around me that we can be hopeful. This is not the way many of us think and many of us act, and you do it in some of the most tangible ways. Paul simply does it by saying, let's eat some food, guys. Let's hang in there. We're going to get through this. Are Christians the ones saying, we're going to get through this? Are we the ones saying, I've been talking about this for a while, and I'm not sure why it hasn't all ended yet anyway? Jeremiah, the prophet, goes to God's people in the Old Testament, and he prophesies some pretty bad stuff to them and says, yeah, God's going to take you guys into exile. You blew it. You've messed up. If you don't repent, you're going to go into exile. The promised land's going to be gone. But he also says to them that God will be faithful, and he'll bring them back to the promised land. And then he does something specific. Jeremiah buys a piece of land. He buys property in the promised land, and, uh, and he does that to tangibly show the people that God will bring them back to their land, that God will give them back that land. It is Paul's hope that comes out in his words and his actions that, that is communicated that wins these people over, that reminds them this is a person who trusts that God is in control. Christians, us, by our constructive, by our actually meaningful actions, can bring hope to other people, and in doing so, we actually can transform what is going on around us. We really can. They eat some food, they get some strength, and they see land. We read on. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. It's now called St. Paul's Bay. It's kind of coincidence, huh? It was named that, it turns out. So they cast off their anchors and left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made way for the beach. They finally are dropping everything and... Heading for the sand so they can kind of get their boat stuck on the beach and they can get off on a dry land and they can be okay. But striking a reef, something under the water they didn't see, they ran the vessel aground basically too soon. The bow stuck and remained immovable and the stern was being broken by the surf. So what happens is, part of the boat gets stuck, it turns sideways, and as one part is completely immovable, the other is being pounded by the waves, and the boat is literally being broken apart. But it's being broken apart in such a way that people can actually get off of the boat. They're actually getting time, these hundreds of people, to get off of this boat by using the part that's there, plus look, there's some lumber and some things floating around. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. Like, you're a prisoner, you're going, you got to be kidding me, right? Like, I honestly thought that my biggest problems in life were all this stuff going on, you're going to kill me. But to be a Roman centurion, to return to Rome with news that your prisoner escaped, because at this point the ship is the only way they're keeping these guys under control. People start swimming away, they can go potentially anywhere. And these Roman guards head back to Rome and they tell their leaders there, sorry, somebody escaped and something we've seen from Acts already is that they themselves would be executed if that happens. So they go, well, fine, we'll just kill them, right? Say they died in a shipwreck and uh, we'll at least still have our jobs. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. And the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship, and so it was that all were brought safely to land. And so it was that surfing was invented as men jumped on boards for the first time and took them into the shore. This uh, centurion gets everybody to the shore because he knows we've got to keep everybody with us because this is what Paul has told me. This is what Paul has told us that we have to do. Because Paul was there, because Paul was there, these men were saved. Not just saved from the storm, but saved from the centurion, the very people who were kind of protecting them, but then it turns out still really only in it for themselves. It's almost like where are there not enemies here, right? Things that can kill us and hurt us. Because of Paul, these men were saved. Because he was there, they were saved why on earth in a shipwreck would Paul himself not just find a way to bail not just get out of the boat onto another boat why not why wouldn't just do something else God's getting him to Rome God's getting me there that is literally the only assurance that he gets he's gonna get there so what does Paul say knowing he's gonna get there as he says if you guys stick with me then you'll get there too Paul thinks of these men, he thinks of these people, he doesn't see them as enemies, he doesn't see them as opponents, he doesn't jump ship, he knows they're all in this together, and as a result of it, these men are saved because of him. I was listening to um, a speech that was given in the 70s by this British theologian named Malcolm Muggeridge, I mean, doesn't this sound like riveting stuff, right? And he was speaking to these students about the fall, the downfall of Christendom in Britain. And the idea was around this time, people were really lamenting the fact that, you know, the church had been such a huge part of the world and the culture and now Christendom, this idea of like a Christian empire where, where the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world can kind of work together. It's all clearly falling apart now and it seems like the church is a minority and it's less relevant and all these things. And, they're, and, they're, and he's telling these students... Um, that he believes this is not bad for the church, that it may be bad for Christendom and it's not bad, you know, for Christians. It's not bad for the gospel. It's not bad for those um, who are saved. And a student asks him at the end of it, there's this Q&A period, and he says, uh, you seem to have a lot of confidence. He gives a lot of examples throughout it of like individual people who were just doing this great job of living out the heart of Jesus and caring about people, kind of like doing what Paul was doing, right? And he says, see, it's, it's still going to be okay. There, there, there are reasons that we can have hope in, in what we do here in this time. And this student asked him, they said, okay, I get it that you have confidence in these people, but what about the church? what about the church? What about this collected group? I mean, how do we know the church isn't next? The church itself isn't going to fall, that God isn't going to just give up with the church and either want some other way or something else? And his response to the guy is this. He says, it entirely depends on whether the church, the church is, remain true to the gospel of Christ. Whether they truly expound his gospel, whether they truly express his revelation, if they do, then clearly they won't die. Even though in some aspects they might come to grief, it depends entirely on that. There's no other factor in the thing. They wouldn't succeed because they had great wealth or great power or because they attracted very brilliant people. None of that would count unless they are really and truly doing what our Lord says ensuring that his light shined. If they do that, then their part is assured. You see, it is in times of of difficulty, of trial, when we think that our very lives are at stake, and the church is no different in this way, that we are so prone to say, well then, we put our hope in these other things, and that will get us through, that will, God cares about the end, not the means, right, to the end, he just cares that we get there. And and what this theologian is saying is he's saying, it is those who continue To give people hope in the gospel and in Jesus and not everything else that people are looking in. The Christians will be the people who are saying, yes, we have hope in Jesus and the gospel, not in anything else. Again, just whatever you have to do to connect the dots here, okay? Like, have hope in that, then the church has nothing to worry about. Because the church will be bringing people real, genuine hope. And then the people of the church live in that way. We live as people who basically exude that kind of hope. I read a book recently about um, a shipwreck. No, it's not this one. Um, But in my preparation for this, obviously. um, And it was about a shipwreck off the coast of the Auckland Island. um, uh, Auckland Island, which is like 280 miles south of New Zealand. And you think, oh, New Zealand, the Shire, right? That must be nice. Not a very nice place, it turns out. Because um, it's, uh, is that where Steve's from? from Auckland? No, he's from somewhere else. Anyway, um, it's like constantly blizz- like ice cold freezing rainy storms all year round. And uh, it's like nothing but um, sea lions and rainy storms all year. And these guys go there in 1860 on a ship and they go there to look for uh, silver in, uh, in the mountains and they get in a shipwreck and they end up washed up on the shore and there's five men that survive. And these five men due to the leadership of a few of these guys and through their diligence in sort of putting into practice these kind of daily routines rooted in hope and it starts with actually a bible study these guys like they get broken down to the point none of them that particularly religious get broken down to the point where they uh they begin to read the bible together as a group And then they kind of form this family together and then they basically just say we're going to find food we're going to make shelter and eventually they say we're going to build a boat they have to build a forge to make tools to build a boat and they build this boat and they eventually get uh, two of them back to uh i think to new zealand or they get to the closest place they can get to and they get back to civilization two years later these men do And then they come back, they don't forget about their friends, they come back with a boat to pick up their friends, and as they come back to pick up their friends on this deserted island, they see smoke coming from the other end of the island. Turns out that all the while that they were abandoned on this island alone, there was another group of guys that had washed up on the same island. It was a a boat that 20 guys had survived the shipwreck, washed up on the other end of the island. But because these men basically just languished in misery and despair. 20 men would eventually become two. They would resort to cannibalism. They would have no shelter, they would have nothing to depend on really, and they would ultimately end up having to be rescued. It's a story about these two groups of people in very similar circumstances. One that actually has hope and what that looks like, and one that does not if 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 we are to be the people who say and even the direst of circumstances first of all if we are to look at our own lives and we are to say just because things are hard it doesn't mean god's not in control and if god's in control it's okay that things are hard because if god's in control it doesn't mean that whenever things are hard i give up i stop and i say oh no god doesn't want this otherwise he wouldn't let this thing get difficult but it also means being people who have hope and that that hope is manifested in some of the most tangible ways possible some of the smallest ways possible the things that we have to do each day to say i know that god's going to be good god is going to be great i look to tomorrow and i look forward to it in hope that what that i can bring others with me instead of jumping ship let's pray Father. Um, it is so incredible, this story. And to see the, the incredible detail that comes through and what it proves about the genuineness of this story in this account. We expect every step of the way for some miraculous, incredible, crazy thing to happen. And yet it doesn't. We're told that you're in control even though it seems like these guys are just languishing away in a storm. One could easily point to leadership and weather and all kinds of circumstances and say, no, that's why these guys survived. That's what happened. It wasn't God. Father, would you give us the ability to know that you are in control And would you help us to endure difficult things rather than just assume that you only intend for us to take the easy path, God? Would you give us a hope that is contagious? And in doing that, would you make us completely relevant no matter what is happening in this world, in our families, in our lives, Lord? Help us to keep going, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen.